Hello, podcast listener. I object. Sustained. Out of order. Court reporter, read back that last statement. You're going to find out a lot about the law in this episode of JJ Meets World with our guest, Zenus Bear. We're going to get into things right away. We keep the intro nice and short on this one. And uh, you do not want to be listening to this in your workplace with the volume turned up, not because of objectionable language, but there may be a little bit of wincing involved. Tucker and I talk a lot about wincing. And speaking of wincing, it makes me wince whenever I hear someone say they would love to donate to JJ Meets World, but they don't know where. It's simple. Patreon.com slash JJ Meets World. Enjoy. One, two, three, four. JJ Gordon, sort of like that Indiana Jones in that he's always snipping out his next adventure. Yes, he is. He's always interviewing guests so he can have them on his show and they can talk about pop culture, arts, and leisure. JJ has his flag unfurled and he likes his french fries curled and he's fun and then he twirls as he goes to meet the world. He will march into the rain even if his ankle sprain. Take a peek inside his brain. This podcast is called JJ Meets World. There are a lot of things that people don't want to talk about, but that's changed greatly, I would say, over the last 30 years. Um, there was a time when things were sort of dirty words that no one really wanted to say out loud. There were, there were concepts that were happening in everyday life. Um, for example, uh, maybe you had a friend who was suffering from depression, okay. but you didn't want to come right out and be like, well, you know, uh, Rudy has some troubles. Oh, sure. You, and, you, you would speak in euphemism. Right. Rather than coming out and just saying what you mean and what you feel. Right. And every now and then there's still something that kind of makes you wince a little bit when you hear it. And it's a little jarring, even though there's nothing dirty. There's nothing. Uh, it's something that we all deal with every day. Um, and I think this episode is one of those opportunities for you to stop wincing at a conversation that's taking place. Um, our guest is Zenas Bear, and Zenas uh, is a lawyer, and he deals with a very specific type of court case that has to do with circumcision. And so you're going to hear all sorts of words in this. You're going to hear uh, genitals, mutilation, penis, uh, You just foreskin. heard all three of those, all yeah, four of those right, right now. Yep, so get it out of your system because... This is one of those podcast conversations. This is why we started JJ Meets World, right? To be able to talk to people and find out about things outside of your own bubble right. that are taking place around you all the time. You you can learn so much just through the art of conversation. And Zenus is someone I've known Zenus for a while because he's been on the board of directors at Theater B for a long time. He's been the guy who had all the legal expertise that we ever needed. He's been very, very giving with his time. Um, and he is just a f- fount of of knowledge that that you wouldn't think to even maybe look into until you talk to him about it. It's very fascinating. When he when we finished our talk, we're recording this intro after we've had a chance to have our talk, which is why I know that those words are present in <laughs> our next conversation. Um, 
But he brought in kombucha for us, mm-hmm. and it was delightful. I've tried kombucha one time before and didn't like it and had said, oh, I'm good. Thank you. But then he pulls up this giant, massive like uh, jug filled with what looks like apple juice, and I thought, well, I should try it. You know, he brought it as a as a gift to the to the to the set, and I drank it, and I like kombucha now. Yeah, and it's yeah. Even as he was leaving, he was talking about how uh, we are we're simply a uh, a delivery system for good gut health gut, to the next yeah. generation. He, he thinks of us as carriers. Yeah. And we're hosts to and the guts. This is something that's very very good for you, and so sauerkraut too. By yeah. the way, this is the. <laughs> The second guest we've had on <laughs> who talks about how they make their own sauerkraut. Um, There's another word that happens in this episode. It's pasteurization. Mm-hmm. That plays into the conversational topics. You should uh, you should maybe go to YouTube and check out pasteurization. But be careful because Louis Pasteur, who invented it, if you accidentally type Louis twice, you'll end up with that song, Louis, Louis. <laughs> Whoa, baby! Gotta get rid of bacteria and milk. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right, folks, sit back, relax. This episode of JJ Meets World features Zenus Bear. And if you enjoy this conversation, if you enjoy any of the conversations we've had, we sure would appreciate you going to patreon.com slash JJ Meets World and uh, donating to our cause. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, we love doing this. And there are some financial constraints to it. This isn't a threat. We're not holding you hostage. We'll never charge for an episode of JJ Meets World. Um, But it sure would be nice now that I'm very close to being married to not have to say, listen, I just need this money every month. And I don't want you to ask questions. Uh, Patreon.com slash JJ Meets World. You can give a dollar a month. Uh, We have many, many, many awesome loyal listeners. And we have a lot of people who are giving already. And every single dollar helps. Don't think that it doesn't. A dollar goes a long, long, long way. And let's face it, you do not need an extra buffalo chicken ranch wrap (laughs) when you're in the drive-thru. That's a JJ Meets World thing. I will describe to you what it's like to eat one, and we'll both experience that pleasure at the same time. Zenith Bear! JJ Meets World! Welcome to the studio, Zenus Bear. Zenus, that is a cool name. It's one that I have not stumbled upon uh, in my life yet. Do you know where that comes from? I do. Do you want me to tell I you? I would. Oh, <laughs> I don't. Stop. Yes. Okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yes. Um, uh, I come from a large family. My parents were old order Mennonites, and so they were deep into the Bible, and um, I have... 10 brothers and four sisters. Wow. So my dad was looking for unusual names from the Bible. And so I was stuck with Zenus. And it is interesting, though, that. Uh, I guess just get a little bit closer to the microphone. It comes from Titus, the book of Titus in uh, the New Testament. It is a. Uh, um, reference to somebody he called, Apostle Paul called for purposes of consultation, and it says, bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollo on their journey diligently that nothing shall be wanting on them. Titus 3.13 from the Bible. 
And Zenith the, the lawyer. Wow. Zenith the lawyer. Yes. And then what did you end up doing as a career in life? I, I am a lawyer, but remember, <laughs> remember though that. The Mennonites and the Hutterites have no use for lawyers because they do not resolve disputes in courts. They resolve disputes just by consensus. They do not um, specialize in suing other people. So it was of no significance, but yet there are many parallels between the work I do right now and the biblical reference in Titus. For example, the book of Titus is written by Apostle Paul to Titus, who was a church elder. He sent to Crete to proselytize in Crete to change hearts and minds to become Christians. And you can see in the early uh, verses of Titus that it's a very new religion. Hmm. Christianity was very new. And he sets out criteria for the appointment of magistrates, the things to look for. Men should not uh, have multiple wives. They should be just very moderate drinkers and don't beat their wives. Women should be chaste. And he gives a warning to uh, Titus and says... Watch out for those of the circumcision. They will subvert entire houses for filthy lucre sake. And it is a very, wow. uh, it, it's very um, apropos to what I am doing right now, as, at least in part of my practice, and that is fighting for one-day-old infant's integrity, bodily integrity. Do you feel like there was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in your name uh, leading to this, or do, or is this just pure coincidence and it makes for a wonderful story uh, when you meet folks? Uh, you know, um, I'm not sure that I uh, believe in prophecy and uh, predestination, but the, the way it worked out, I was astounded to find that even in the Bible, Titus was very uh, strong against cutting and genital uh, cutting of anyone to show a bond with Yahweh. But this is still, I mean, this is kind of like finding out that J.J. was like the 18th apostle and he was the podcaster in town, right? Exactly. Like, like it, it's, yes, it's kind indeed. of like yeah. that to me. Yes, indeed, yes. <laughs> um, so, well, so let's get into what your life's work is. This is sure. very fascinating to me. And uh, if somebody is tuning into this and they know know nothing about it, lay down the, the facts. Okay, yeah. Um, circumcision, uh, most people know the word. Most people understand that it has something to do with cutting of genitals of boys and in some cultures also girls. And in fact, in America, they were doing clitoridectomies up until 1948 was the last oh, one that wow. I know of wow. that took place no in Breckenridge, Minnesota, mm -hmm. where a young woman was taken to the doctor because she was playing with herself. 
you know, playing with the, the mm-hmm. parts down under. And the doctor said, well, we can cure that. We'll just do a clitoridectomy. So that is something that has been known in the medical profession for a long period of time. And they finally stopped the female cutting, but they have not given the same protection to males. So the circumcision usually is passed off as just a snip, a little bit of a cut, a little bit of discomfort, but the long-term impacts cannot be disputed. If a child's brain is affected positively by music being played in utero, think of the impact the cutting of the most sensitive tissue of that body has on that child as a one-day-old child. Think about the child and the, the amount of um, skin that is removed through a normal circumcision amounts to 15 square inches of the most erogenous tissue of the human body. So the, pop, the part of the population in my generation, we were almost all cut for no reason. It was just routine. And that routine came into vogue in the 19, or 1890s when there was medical uh, profession took over childbirth as a condition, a medical condition to be treated. Versus like housewives and, and home birth. Birthing centers yep. uh, where you'd have midwives and do that uh, a type of birthing. So the medical profession got involved and they uh, then started looking to how can we monetize this, this uh, medical procedure. And the theory was, and this was before the uh, theory of disease being caused by bacteria and viruses. Mm -hmm. There was this imbalance of bodily fluids theory that predated virus and bacteria causing of diseases. So the theory was that the body had four fluids and a balance of the fluids created a healthy body. When you released some of the fluids, it would create an imbalance, thereby exposing the body to potential disease processes. And they knew that masturbation caused release of seminal fluid. So the theory was that the release of the seminal fluid creates an imbalance in the body, and therefore it caused diseases. The early medical literature from 1890 to the 1930s is replete with uh, medical um, uh, articles published in very respectable journals that cutting off a foreskin causes and, um, you know, um, the, the, uh, cures encephalitis. Uh, cures mm. diabetes, cures alcoholism. There's a whole list of cures for cutting off the foreskin. And even though each of those uh, were wrong and have been shown to be not effective, it has persisted throughout the years where the medical doctors perform this surgery without benefit of diagnosis, 
without benefit of medical or therapeutic purpose. So they're doing it just because a parent says, do it. There is no medical reason to do it. And it's that, that issue um, is, from my standpoint as a lawyer, the significant issue that we are abusing the human rights of that one-day-old infant by cutting off the most erogenous tissue and removing his choice as to whether or not he wants to keep that foreskin. He can always, at the age of 18, make that decision. And I always say that I am not anti-circumcision. I'm just anti-force circumcision. Mm. If somebody at the age of 18 decides they want to live their life without the foreskin, they're free to march to the urologist and have it chopped off. I will tell you, though, that I did take the deposition of one of the um, prominent surgeons from Southern California about circumcision. And I asked him, well, if you get an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old into your office and who asks for a circumcision, what's the first thing you do? And he said, the first thing I would do is ask for a psychiatric consult to make sure that the 18-year-old was <laughs> wow. able to make that decision. So there is really no reason to do it, and we don't have a flood of 18-year-olds who are uncircumcised going to the urologist to say, chop it off, please. Wow. Okay, so, <laughs> so let, me, let me get some of this. So first of all, it sounds like we went pretty much from bloodletting to saying, like, well, we'll do circumcision instead. That sounds good. Um, and, you know, to make the, the horror of masturbation, and this is a way we can start to curb that. Um, you know, I think that every 50 years, the medical community sort of has a, a brand new spin on things, right? And so they're like, you know what? It was barbaric what we were doing here, but don't worry. We're good to go right now. I think of Star Trek Four quite a bit when someone's <laughs> okay. bringing it up, which is the one where they go oh, yeah. back, like they go back in time to the 1980s, and there's a woman who's on kidney dialysis, and Bones goes, "My God, <laughs> barbarians!" <laughs> and it just goes to show that we change, we change minds, and we change opinion as time goes on indeed yes and and accepted what can be considered accepted wisdom or knowledge goes unchallenged for a long right time so like you know i my parents circumcised me because th their understanding was was that it's 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 healthier right they had this uh misunderstanding that there was you know disease that could get trapped there if you're not blah blah blah, blah and and uh but that just isn't true and it, it in what decade were you born 85 i was born in 85 um, and I think that I guess I never asked my parents, but I think I was circumcised because my dad was. That's and who typical. Knows, that's the typical reason, right? And and I'm maybe he was circumcised because his dad was, and you just follow that tradition without knowing why. You just circumcision's been good to me, right? <laughs> it's been good to you. It's been yeah. good to your brother. Circumcision was good for your grandfather. <laughs> I do think that we're probably at a day and age though where people are 
probably doing a little more research and making decisions on their own rather than just saying this is what it's always been. Um, I think uh, the rate of circumcision certainly reflects that uh, sentiment. Uh, in the 1970s, the rate was as high as 80 to 85 percent of those uh, baby boys that were born were cut. Now it is down to about 57%, I think the CDC's most recent statistics are. And it's uh, regional. The, uh, Washington has the lowest circumcision rate, about 19%. Uh, on the coasts, it's lower. In the middle of America, it is much higher than on uh, other areas. And I think largely on the coasts, it is due to the influence of Hispanics, because they don't do it as a culture. Okay. Chinese don't do it as a culture. Africans don't do it as a culture, except for some tribes. But generally, they don't do it. Europeans don't do it. We are the shining beacon of genital cutting of baby boys Americans? in the world. Americans are, yes. Okay. Americans are. How do the Canadians... There's uh, only about 20% of really? Canadians, and they used to be, followed the Brit, British model, and the British used to, they thought, okay, this uh, circumcision coming from America, that looks like a good deal. You know, it, it's done at the age of one day, and it's, you know, you bundle services, and you chop, chop, and you have everything done. But they did a study back after World War II when they adopted their national health, and they did their study to find out if it was a procedure that had any medical basis, and they said no. And so circumcision really has not occurred in Britain to any, any extent after the adoption of the National Health Act, and I think that was in the mid-40s, early 50s. What about... Um so when when someone mentions circumcision, the first thing I think about is the movie Robin Hood Men in Tights. I was thinking that nip the <laughs> tip. Yep. yep. And, it, and he shows them a little guillotine. It's a <laughs> Rabbi Tuckman shows a little guillotine. And I remember not getting that joke when the movie came out. And it took many, many okay. years before I finally understood. And it, I mean, the I remember laughing at the joke, but laughing out of like, oh, my God, that's horrific. Uh -huh. And I thought that's what they actually did at the time was, you know, something similar to that. Do you know what the cost, you know, you say they bundle it together, right? And so that yes. drives up some pricing. Yes. Do you know what the cost would be, like what a hospital on average would charge for a circumcision? Uh, those statistics are kind of hard to come by because of the bundling of all the services. But I have seen in my practice that billings for just the procedure, not the, uh, not the doctor's time or anything like that, or the, ho the hospital room, um, is about between two fifty and uh, seven hundred dollars. I've seen that as a range, but you also have to factor into that one more day in the hospital for both the mother and the child, because you cannot release the child after within uh, twenty four hours after cutting, and so they build in two extra hospital days for uh, one for the mother, one for the child, and then the 
the cost of the procedure itself. It, uh, the, some of the estimates I've seen is that it is up to a $5 billion a year cost to our medical, um, uh, our medical expenses. Wow. All for, there's no diagnosis and no therapeutic purpose for that cutting. Be like giving the baby a collagen implant into their lips. Yeah. You know, like, don't worry, we'll find out how supple those are later. You know, you talk about lips, JJ, mm-hmm. and that's one of the um, comparisons. The tissue of the foreskin is just like the inside of the lips. Mm. It is mm. that mucosal tissue, it's junctional tissue between the exterior world and the internal world. The foreskin is there to internalize the gland's penis so that it keeps it moist, ready for in introitus. And it is uh, a, sort of a shame that Americans have lost at least the men who have been cut have lost that ability to please a woman to provide at least some of the lubrication. Mm. And the lubrication industry is another one that benefits greatly by the genital cutting mm. of of uh, us as American boys. You're saying the doctors are in the pocket of big KY. Oh, <laughs> yes. I think that's a good, a good way to put good it. Yes, put it. In, indeed. So I'm curious, so who is seeking out your services? Um, the people who seek out my services generally are those who have had an experience with a circumcision that has gone wrong. And it's only after a circumcision goes wrong that they understand, that they do their research, that they weren't told uh, the functions of the foreskin, they were not told why the medical profession does it, they were not told anything about that. And so they come to me and try to make a difference. And I know that my efforts are small, that my efforts uh, are insignificant compared to the weight of the medical establishment. But I think at some point, the medical establishment has to come to grips with the morality of cutting a child without medical diagnosis or the therapeutic benefit. I I just can't understand how medical doctors trained, men and women alike, can cut the genital tissue of a baby boy and not think of that boy as a separate autonomous being and instead they follow the request of usually an uninformed parent Mm -hmm. to cut their child because my dad was because my grandpa was. You know, you talk about that, and I, this past summer, I went on a little journey to a family reunion in northern Ontario, uh, about 900 miles straight east of here, up in Lake Nipissing, and it was on my mother's side. My last uncle on my mother's side still survives. He's 93 years old. And I wanted to know whether the circumcision tradition in our family came through the bear side or the Brubaker side. 
And I, I knew my dad was cut because I had experience with him when he was on his deathbed. He needed to use a, you know, the assistance in going to the, the bathroom. So I knew he was cut. And I did not know whether anyone in my f- mother's family was cut. And I, I discovered that at least my mother's brother is not cut. So it has to come through my father's side. And so my father had uh, 13 siblings. And I thought about, okay, how did my grandpa, Ephraim Bear, did he wake up one day and just say, I think it's a good idea to start chopping off my baby's dicks? I don't think so. So it had to have come from his father. And I don't know the, the age of their birth in the 1870s. My grandfather was born in 1870. And then there was no circumcision in America or Canada. So it had to have come from some previous thing. And my dad always told me that he thought we had some Jewish blood in our background. And that might explain Mm -hmm. why that portion of the Jewish tradition carried forward. But I have no way to uh, confirm that. I, you know, a little bit ago you were mentioning about how there's, there's a morality aspect of this when you're looking at it. And I think of the Hippocratic Oath. And what's the most important part of the Hippocratic Oath? Do no harm, right? First, do no harm. Right. Yes. And so uh, that must be something that is brought up quite a bit in discussion about this. It is. But think about it, how difficult it is to determine what the harm is. Right. Because we, as cut the adults, know that we can reproduce, we can uh, have a uh, you know a meaningful sexual life and fulfillment. We have no idea what is lost through that cutting, and it's difficult for us to compare. How do you convince a jury what the loss is? And especially when you have the uh, the um, one day old infant, how do you convince a jury what a one day old in- infant has? lost, especially when most of the jury is cut. Um, I tell you, uh, the, the one case I tried in a, a district court um, on circumcision, um, the jury panel, there was 28 jurors selected. Not one of them was uh, had made the decision, or I, I should, uh, sorry, one of the individuals on that jury panel had experience with an intact penis. That's all. One individual out of the 28 had experience with an intact penis, and the judge would not allow me to show photos of an intact penis, nor photos of the tools and instruments used to cut off the foreskin because the judge said that would be too prejudicial to the jurors um, because, you know, it it shows cutting, it shows knives, it shows clamps, all of those things. (laughs) Odd. So you must be dealing with something that's pretty difficult because there's a huge amount of the population who don't give a second's thought to it. In fact, they probably 
have a moment where they said, and would you like us to circumcise your son? And they go, well, yeah. That's usually the way the decisions go. And I've read any number of articles that say the decision-making process of whether to cut or not cut a child is made long before they get to the hospital. And the, uh, the way that it is is that usually people don't know what the gender of the child is. And so the parents are there to make a decision about circumcision, which is not covered during the prenatal classes. There, there is no instruction on what uh, happens. There is no requirement to observe a video. And if you ever want to see a brutal uh, situation is uh, pull up YouTube circumcision and you will see the brutality that goes in in the circumcision of that child. That child is um, strapped down spread eagle in uh, you know plastic molds that uh, would make Joseph Mengele proud uh, of uh, the type of torture that they're doing to one day old infants. It's a barbaric procedure, which I think if they required new parents to observe before they did it and said, there's no medical reason to do it, there's no, you know, no therapeutic purpose for it, that we would dial back on circumcision significantly. Well, and again, going back to this, you're not saying you're anti-circumcision, you are anti-thrusting a one-day-old child into the yes. situation. Making a decision that permanently impairs that child's ability to have dominion and control over the autonomy of their own, of their own body. And it's the uh, bodily integrity that is the first uh, basis of who, how we define ourselves as humans. You know, I, your rights stop at my skin. You don't have a right to break, break my skin in any way. Words, you can use whatever words you want, but when you start cutting, that is illegal. And each of these doctors and nurses, in my mind, is committing a crime by participating in that abuse because that cutting is assault in the first degree and criminal sexual conduct in the first degree. You know, you're cutting genitals, you're touching genitals, you're cutting the genitals, no medical reason, no, med no therapeutic purpose. That is assault in the first degree or criminal sexual conduct in the first degree. What happens when people argue, well, it's part of a religious background? Is that uh, tough to say? Or, you know, I like to tell people this. I was like, you know, in my grandfather's generation, they used to poop in buckets. Mm -hmm. uh, we've right. come a long way. And I am a big, big, big uh, opponent to, well, we've always just done it this way, so we'll continue to do it. I, that yeah. is the worst excuse for anything in the world. And I feel like that's something that comes into this conversation. Right, right. And I think, uh, um, I, I think, uh, I, I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought, JJ. You were talking about. I was about, talking about the, there's a religious aspect. The to religious it. aspect, yes. Uh, the, the re, the, from a Christianity standpoint, there is no religious aspect. Jesus told the Christians that you should 
get rid of those old fables and customs that uh, require bloodletting in order to have a covenant with a God. The, the God that Jesus understood and preached was a forgiving God, one that did not require blood sacrifice. And we don't allow infant sacrifice anymore in the name of religion. We don't allow for a religious basis to cut off little fingers or earlobes. Those are all um, antiquated um, notions of dominion and control over a, of, a, of an infant. And so the religious aspect, while the Jews and the Muslims can take their direction from Genesis uh, chapter 17, that where Yahweh talks to Moses or to, uh, talks to Abram uh, at 99 years of age, saying that he and Sarah are going to have a baby. She's 102 or 101. And, um, you know, Yahweh tells him, you know, from now on, you will demonstrate your commitment to me by cutting every male child, every slave that enters your threshold, you will cut them, and it shall be done at the age of eight days. And I have heard some Jewish scholars talk about why it was eight days, because this is a covenant between the man and Yahweh. The, when the child is born, it has the mother's blood in it. By eight days, it is theorized that the baby has only male blood in it, so it becomes that male sacrifice. And there is uh, the Ishmael, where the son was circumcised at the age of 13, and he is in the lineage of Muhammad. That's why some of the Muslims circumcise in teenage years. Got it. How did this life's work find you? Um, that's an interesting question. It actually was after I had my three children. I have three boys. None of them were cut. But this was before I ever got into this issue about circumcision. At the time when I had my children, 89 to 93, uh, my wife uh, did the research. She uh, looked at the um, articles and decided there was no reason for it. I had no reason to go either way. I had, even though I was cut, I had no vested interest in it. I knew intuitively it was wrong to just cut without a reason. Um, but uh, so I had the children. Then in 1996, I believe it was, the state of North Dakota adopted the FGM ban that's the female genital mutilation ban, and it was advocated by Dwayne Voskule and um, um, uh, I forget her name from uh, Minot, but there were two individuals who were very active in trying to get the law passed, and they came to see me to try to fight that law on an equal protection basis from the constitutional equal protection because they were protecting young girls genital tissue, I took the position, or they wanted me to consider taking the position that genital tissue is genital tissue. Whether it's on a boy or a girl, 
it, it, if it's deserving of protection on a girl, it's deserving of protection on a boy as well. And so that was a, they came to see me and I, at first I thought, well, that's an odd issue. I mean, why would I want to get involved with that? I talked to some of my family members and they said, no, don't get involved with that. That was too, uh, too controversial. Uh, but I started to reflect on it, and I thought that that is absolutely correct, that this one-day-old infant is a human being with all endowed with all of the rights and privileges that we have as adults, the right of due process, equal protection, the right of bodily integrity. Why is not this law violative of the Equal Protection Clause? And so... I did commence a lawsuit against the state of North Dakota to have the statute declared unconstitutional and suggested the way they could fix it is just take out the gender name. Mm -hmm. Just say, instead of female mutilation, it would be genital mutilation. <coughs> Excuse me. That is... I mean, it's it's amazing that 1995, which is uh, clear in my memory, I remember oh, yeah. 1995 clearly, that this became something that be, you know was a a topic discussed at a state at a state level for us. Right. And gosh, uh, so what the outcome of the case ultimately is it was uh, you know the the district court uh, dismissed it without ever having a hearing without having any argument it just uh, dismissed it on uh, the the paperwork that was filed i appealed that to the 8th circuit court of appeals at which point i think it was douglas barr who is now a district court judge out in uh, morton county i believe he was just appointed argued for the state, and some of the, the Court of Appeals justices asked, well, if this were a case involving public benefits, uh, SNAP benefits or something, would it stand constitutional um, scrutiny? And um, he said, well, uh, perhaps not in that situation. Mm -hmm. And the, the Court of Appeals um, affirmed the district court without citing any cases involving the standing and they it was uh, dismissed on this basis that the mother did not have standing because she could not get the foreskin back and so standing is a technical term used by judges in my mind sometimes to get rid of cases they don't want to hear. Is it a term of art or is it an actual technical term? It's a legal term. Okay. It's under Article 3 standing. You have to have a case in controversy. It's Got it. used okay. by judges oftentimes to uh, dismiss cases. So, so when you're arguing in court and you're arguing against the state um, and they make an argument, I mean, what's, what types of pro-circumcision arguments are you hearing your opponents say in those in that context? It, that it's a personal choice, that it is a, a choice that uh, parents should be allowed to make uh, on behalf of their one-day-old infants. I think it's Which is really interesting because you're basically saying, you know, they're, they're, they're saying, well, we're worried about the parents' rights to choose, but you're saying it's not about their, they don't have a right to choose. That's, that's my position, and that's, uh, it's so revolutionary that uh, you take a position that a parent does not have a right to um, determine what 
shape the child's penis is going to look like. I contend that parents do not have that right. Medical doctors and nurses who participate in that procedure are committing crimes while they're doing it. And all of us who know that that is going on have a duty to report under the duty to report statutes uh, uh, that exist in all 50 states. So if you know a child is being subjected to maltreatment, which has a specific definition, and my contention is, is that those children are being maltreated by cutting. It is the duty of us, all citizens, and particularly those mandatory duty on the behalf of the healthcare professionals to report that to the authorities that this child is being abused. And that's my most recent attempt to attack this issue is use the duty to report statute to require each of the participants to report to the local um, in, uh, investigating agency that this child is being abused or subject to maltreatment. I imagine that you are in contact with a great number of attorneys across the country who are attempting to take on the same Goliath that you are, and you guys probably have a really neat chat room somewhere (laughs) where you're sharing stories, insight, things as such like that. Um, Have you been called to other states to, to, you know, maybe do a little bit of consulting work, anything like that? I have. uh, I consulted with the folks in San Francisco when they had their uh, local initiative to ban circumcision. That ultimately was uh, dismissed by the district court as being an improper intrusion on the licensing of medical professionals, which the California Supreme Court said was committed to the um, Board of Medical Practice, not the district court to make those decisions. But I have consulted with in cases in California, in the um, Carolinas, in Florida, all of those, uh, and uh, the 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 point you make, JJ, about uh, a flood of other attorneys. There are not a lot of attorneys that do this kind of work. It is usually work that involves constitutional issues, and the constitutional issues generally do not generate a lot of cash flow, a lot of damages. There's a lot of input without anything coming out the other end by way of monetary stuff. So most of the work that I do is break even at best, but it is a passion for me to try to stop this. And if I'm on this world, I'm going to do something that I think will serve the general public and serve uh, all of the babies that are being cut uh, for no medical reason or no therapeutic purpose. Do you think that this is something that the states need to decide one by one, that's the fastest route, or should it be a federal issue? I know things like like child pornography can, is a federal issue. Yes, and so yes. things dealing with the you know exploitation of children are already on a federal level. Yes, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it comes down to just understanding and applying 
what all of us understand are the constitutional rights that we all enjoy, the right to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you can't have property or liberties taken from you without due process. Those are federal constitutional rights. If we only treated a one-day-old infant as a fully formed human endowed with all of the constitutional rights and privileges that you and I enjoy, end of story. There would be no reason then and no basis to cut. But that is where the issue is. Courts are reluctant to um, uh, expand constitutional rights or privileges, and they're reluctant to uh, enter into that parentis patriae. Um, the argument that parents have a right and a duty to take care of their children, and they're given broad discretion on how to do that. There's only been one court that I'm aware of in the world that has addressed this issue from the standpoint of that one-day-old infant, and it's a court in Cologne, Germany, the facts were a four-year-old Muslim boy uh, went to a doctor or father, parents took him to a doctor, wanted him circumcised. Uh, there was some, uh, the, the, uh, a report was made uh, before the circumcision took place, and uh, there was an investigation, and the doctor was uh, forbidden from cutting. But this judge analyzed it from the standpoint of the child and found ultimately that the child's bodily integrity, that right, trumped any other right that the parents could say, even the religious right, because the judge said, what if that child at the age of 18 decides he does not want to be Muslim? Then he's already marked and he can't get that back to make his own decision that he doesn't want to be marked as a Muslim or a Jew. And so the only case that has analyzed this issue from the child's perspective is a court in Germany who found that the child's rights uh, mandated bodily integrity and the, the doctor was not uh, authorized to cut based on parental request. In a court of law in the United States, are you allowed to enter, uh, you know, court cases from around the world at all? I know that when they look at things like a precedent outside of the United States, is that allowed? Um, I can do it, certainly. But it, the question is, well, how care. much weight do, yeah. do they give it? And I just read a headline today, I think, in the, in the forum saying one of the justices, and I didn't read it closely, but one of the justices said we have to look beyond our borders for judicial precedent if we are going to be members of the world society. That's so interesting because th th there seems to be two sides to that coin because you could, if, you're, if you're then going any quote-unquote legal precedent set outside our borders, we can look to as well. Then it's like, well, what countries legal systems are we are we allowing to be a part of that bucket you know you could use then that argument i i would assume to argue in favor of 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 something that is authoritarian in spirit right. because it 
they did it over there. It could be even a, you know, a Western country. It could be a European country. And you could make the argument like, well, there's precedence so, for Saudi this. Arabia right now. Right. Khashoggi. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, if yep. we were to grab onto their uh, legal system, then we would allow our system to kill in that way. But I assume that what is meant by this is that we, uh, if, if other countries are more inclined to recognize individual liberties, which we okay. as Americans uh, seem to champion as important um, attributes for being in a free society, is our individual liberties that we pay close attention to and we don't allow our individual liberties to be restricted without some compelling reason. And I think if we look at the world scene, like there are many world um, uh, treaties, the treaties um, for the rights of the child, the only two countries that have not um, subscribed to that treaty are the United States and Somalia. Go figure. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, China. A treaty, a treaty for the rights of the child. China has signed off on it. Wow. So it's only United States and Somalia. And that is a treaty that does specifically state that a child is an autonomous being and not subject to carving or markings and all that stuff is an uh, abuse of that child's rights. Is is by signing that particular treaty you're talking about, though, I mean, is that... Is that proof of action? I mean, could a country sign that treaty in spirit and not actually follow human rights? They could, but then the treaty, if it were signed, it becomes the law of the land. I think the under the Constitution, it says like that— international law? Uh, I think um, treaties, the Constitution and the treaties are the law of the land. Okay. And so I think if the United States were to adopt the— um, international convention on the rights of the child that yes that would then bind the courts to that uh, that process hmm. whoa this is blowing my mind <laughs> um out outside of uh going to court and fighting for the rights of a, a one-day-old child are there any other aspects of law that you feel are you're also called to um, yes, another um, area of my practice is, uh, again, uh, individual liberties, and it involves the, the raw milk sales in Minnesota. Hmm. I have a case currently uh, in uh, Sibley County in uh, Minnesota, which is west of the Twin Cities, about 80 miles, and it's been going on for about 10 years. It's a, a uh, a farmer who has a, uh, a, a farm with dairy cows, pigs, chickens, and he makes um, ice cream, butter, yogurt, and bottles milk, and he sells it to his customers who are um, people who know what his farm is like. He has an individual relationship with each of them, and the Department of Agriculture has been trying to shut him down for about 10 years now. And we finally, uh, it, the case has gone up to the Court of Appeals and back again, so it's finally it was remanded in uh, earlier this year, February, with a mandate to the district court judge to address the constitutional issues framed by the farmer, and that is that he has 
an absolute right to enter into a private contract with an otherwise fully informed adult human being for the sale and exchange of lawful products. And that was our food products that he raises on the farm. And is it because he's not pasteurizing them? Is that right. why? Okay. Right. He's not pasteurizing it, and he probably does not meet all of the uh, standards for production, like stainless steel this, stainless steel that, white this, and you know okay. all those other um, costly embellishments that you have to do to meet those grade A standards. In Minnesota, we have uh, a constitutional amendment that was adopted in 1906, and that constitutional amendment says that uh, a farmer shall be able to sell and peddle the products of his farm without a license. That's a embedded in the Constitution. And the history of that was that in 1905, Mr. Jensen was peddling melons at the farmer's market in Minneapolis, and he couldn't sell all his melons, so he went door to door, knocking on the doors to try to sell his melons. He was fined by the city of Minneapolis, um, and the case was then appealed uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, he was fined and convicted of selling melons without a license, so he appealed it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court affirmed, saying it is a reasonable exercise of governmental uh, police powers to um, uh, to uh, find him. Hey, buddy, what you, what you in here for? Did you murder <laughs> somebody? <laughs> Did you rob something? No, I was selling melons door to door. Oh, shit, I saw <laughs> man. I didn't realize you were that tough, man. I saw <laughs> you. I'll leave you alone. Um, that's a that's a very interesting case. Uh, I am very interested in knowing how that shakes out. So it's it's uh, basically. Uh, I as, never thought I'd hear the phrase "convicted of selling individual melons without yes, a license." Yes, that's right. That's never right. thought I'd hear that sentence. But uh, to finish that story, mm-hmm. the the population and of Minnesota was so incensed that the legislature at that time, which was heavily skewed to the rural area. Um, adopted this constitutional amendment, and it passed like by 70% of the electorate voted that amendment to be part of the Constitution. And it's been in the Constitution, and the Department of Agriculture has sort of gone an end run and tried to um, diminish the rights of uh, the farmer to sell and peddle the products of the farm by adopting a whole sea of regulations that they now contend indirectly impact that right. And that's the right that is currently being litigated in that district court. Do you think that's because to some extent uh, there's people who are in the pocket of like the frozen vegetable companies and the canned vegetable companies and anyone who wants to make it difficult to yeah. get a hold of fresh produce? The, yes, I, I believe that it is uh, the MDA, Minnesota Department of Agriculture, is really um, a mouthpiece for the big uh, corporate agricultural entities that they want these standards, they want all the regulations to push out the small guy. You know, I, the, I make sauerkraut at home. I make, uh, you know, I do some fermentation. And if I have excess product, why should I not be able to sell or give away my excess product to a neighbor without having 
the fear of the state intruding into that transaction. And in my mind, uh, we did not give up our right of private contract. In other words, if I have a lawful good and I want to exchange it to you either for a trinket or a jewelry or money, that is a transaction that is off limits to government regulators, in my mind. Is this something that they've started really cracking down on in the last maybe several decades as people want to know the source of where their food is and they're very interested in knowing things like this and uh, you know I look uh, two blocks down here we've got a gigantic farmer's market that's taking place um, that really I mean is keeping people out of grocery stores and and uh, I, I think to answer that question that yes I think the Department of Agriculture is under the guise of keeping us safe, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're really uh, personifying the nanny state concept as though you and I are not wise enough to make conscious decisions about what food to put on our dinner plate. We have the right to feed our children vegan if we're so inclined. Uh, the state isn't going to come in and say, now, Tucker, you have to feed your family some meat products, or JJ, you have to live on vegan fare, not, um, not a specific other fare. Those are free choices that we retain as um, citizens of America and our individual states. Because you would hope in a perfect world that there would only be intrusion if an extreme case of actual child neglect was happening, the the foods that they're given are rotten or things right. like that. When when right. actual harm is is happening, but when it's it's merely, you know, your your choice of 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 product, yeah. um, that that that's you know that's different. And you know, uh, I just finished recently Michael Pollard's Pollard's book, Pollard's book, book. I can speak today, uh, <laughs> the omnivore's dilemma, and it talks a lot about especially the corn industry and and how early on even if you want just for the sake of argument to give those original regulators the 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 best of intentions right regardless of what their intentions were you place a barrier that those with capital can afford and then you you create an entrenched interest and an entrenched interest is not going to let go right right and that's what the big uh big agribusiness, agri, the food producers nowadays have essentially um, consolidated all the production. I was just recently out in California, and to look at the amount of vegetables that are grown out there in just sort of factory industrial uh, conditions, uh, now I understand why strawberries are woody. Mm-hmm. They're just uh, pulp. Yep. They have no taste to them. It is the genetic engineering where you um, get the shape and the uh, uh, you know the visual appearance without any of the the taste of the nutrition. To give you a, a an illustration on the wisdom of folks who buy raw milk, milk is a uh, a beautiful medium for the growth of bacteria. Any milk is just a wonderful medium for bacterial growth. And under the regulations for grade A pasteurized milk, 
Grade A pasteurized milk is allowed to have some bacterial contamination, and that is limited at 300,000 bacteria per milliliter. Now, just think about that for a moment. That's about 4 million, Mm -hmm. over 4 million per cup. After pasteurization, the uh, tolerance is 20,000 bacteria per milliliter. So think about it. If milk comes into the pasteurizing plant at its upper threshold and then pasteurization down to 20,000, each of you drinking grade A pasteurized milk that you purchased off the shelf from your local Hornbachers is consuming about 4 million dead bacteria carcasses per cup of milk. That is why milk, if it's pasteurized, when it turns sour, it putrefies. Raw milk changes. It'll curdle. Each of those constituent parts are still eminently consumable by the human being, and they retain their nutritional value. Pasteurized milk, on the other hand, putrefies. It stinks. It becomes uh, undrinkable, unconsumable by human beings. So you can understand why you're saying it's a it's it's a feature not a bug in the system that the reason it's being done is so that the shelf life of that product is much shorter therefore a consumer has to buy more well uh no i think the the reason that is done is back in the 1920s there were dairies who were um peddling swill milk. I mean, they were putting chalk into water. Free circumcision with your swill milk. (laughs) I mean, so there were reasons for doing that. (laughs) And and I'm I'm not making light of those reasons. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of diseases that came about that because people were uh, not, um, you know, selling you milk. They were putting chalk or talcum powder into water to stretch milk. And so the, mm-hmm. there were no standards there. But I think the point is that a reasonable human being might say, okay, if pasteurization just kills bacteria, you know, do I want to drink bacteria carcasses or do I want to drink the whole milk? If I know where this milk comes from, it's from farmer B, I come out there and get the milk or he delivers it to me, I know what it is. If there is any problem with that milk, I go to the farmer and resolve it. If I can't resolve it that way, the courts are there to uh, help me resolve those issues. I, there's a lot of things, again, coming back to my, it's the way we've always done it argument, which is when Louis Pasteur invented pasteurization, we didn't have modern uh, refrigeration and cooling techniques. We didn't know about shelf life as much. We were just salting everything to its core to make it, you know, shippable and fine four weeks later. Um, I wonder how much of the products we consume today that if a scientist took a look at it said, well, with the advancements we've had in technology, we could change these things greatly. Um now, of course, you get kind of the the raw end of the, the stick on that with something like strawberries. And I agree. Strawberries today do not taste the same as they did when I was a kid. Yeah, that is for sure. Yeah. Um, it's just like a St. Bernard today that looks nothing like a St. Bernard from <laughs> roughly 90 years ago. Yeah. Is, it, is that really true? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at pictures of dogs 
today compared to the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, it's it's crazy how much uh, smaller they are. You, you didn't really have dachshunds like we have today then. You know, most of these dog breeds, especially these ones like like dachshunds that are have long bodies or dogs with flat faces, those are dogs that had um, birth defects that then got selected for, that they thought, well, this is, for whatever reason, a designer trait that people want. And so they'd be bred for... Uh, things that are actually problems with them. Those genetic aberrations. Absolutely, absolutely. Ooh. Happens with goldfish too. Yeah. Any goldfish that's a fancy goldfish that's not a comet, that's not a slender goldfish, those are all essentially disabled goldfish. Those are goldfish that they, they don't grow like that in the wild at all because goldfish are carp. Um, they Those are goldfish that they took out of their environment and then bred them in such a way that like 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 they got fatter and shorter and they weren't as as fast and it anyways that's we're a long ways from what we were just talking yeah. about but well, yeah somebody told me recently that there's a crisis in the pumpkin industry because we only want perfect looking pumpkins and so you select those that's what you turn in your jack-o-lantern that's what you roast the seeds of or you throw it away and then the warty, odd-shaped pumpkins are the ones that are getting reground and being used to plant again. When so you're gonna get something that's genetically closer to that warty, quote unquote, ugly pumpkin. And so the industry, when they're talking about these huge shortages of good-looking pumpkins, and it's because we're so greedy and we're taking more and more and more. I passed a house the other day that had seven pumpkins in front of it. When I was a kid, it had two. One for myself, <laughs> one for my sister. Yeah. That was it. We didn't need to have a whole, you know, we just a whole as a family so- of pumpkins. Yeah. As a, <laughs> as a society, yeah. I think we're just getting so wrapped up in things like these giant amount of decorations in front of our homes and we're we're losing sight of some of those simple things. Yeah, I mean, I wonder it 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 seems like you can look to the industrial revolution and how quickly that changed everything and how um, we really forced nature to conform to what we wanted it to be. And you you can lose a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom and understanding when you do that too quickly without considering the consequences. Um, I was listening to a recent interview by Paul Stamets, who's this famous, uh, basically he's a mushroom guy. And... Uh, the message he's trying to get out to people if you own land is to not don't clear dead wood from your land let it sit let it rot you should do that because mushrooms will grow and you want that to happen the mycelium that's growing beneath your land um, connects to all of that and that we're finding out now that that actually has ramifications towards uh the the bee crisis right now we're losing 70 70 to 75 percent of our bee population and all all, all issues like that and that has a lot to do with viruses we created by all the different ways that we try to interfere with our environment. And so we have to definitely, it's, it's not like you stop progress, but you can continue progress and not do it blindly. You can stop and go, you know, what, what are we missing here? What, what are we taking for granted? Like circumcision and, and all these other things that maybe we should revisit. Yeah. Talking about genetics, um, uh, Tucker, the uh, book that I read uh, several years ago now that really had a sea change uh, 
in my outlook of life was Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. And I don't know if you're it's familiar with on my with to read Richard, list. I know Richard him. Dawkins, but, yeah. but uh, that book was just a, a life changing experience. And what he um, what he he described, and I think it is true, is that we as humans become quite haughty and quite full of ourselves when we think that the human life is more important or more valuable than any other life form. He described that the DNA molecule is the same and serves the same purpose, whether it's a blade of grass, an oak tree, a dog, a cat, a cow, a lion, that DNA has a body plan. And that the only purpose of that gene in that DNA or the DNA in the gene is to recreate the body plan as faithfully as it can be done. And the blade of grass, that gene does the same purpose as our genes. It's the body plan replication. And I think what it did to me is make me understand that human beings are the most destructive animals on the face of the earth. We have created and sowed more death and destruction than any other species of the world. Some commentators have said that the Norwegian rat is one of the more uh, prolific um, animals that uh, you know, populates the entire world. But the human being has beat the Norwegian rat. They've gone all the way to every continent, and in their wake is death and destruction of other human or other non-human species. And it is a, uh, it's sort of a privilege that appears to have grown up with human beings that we are the dominant species. We can think, we can communicate, we can plan. We're incentivized to the short term, though. Exactly. We're incentivized to what it is that happens in our immediate sphere and in our immediate future. So you can look at, you know, the oil industry, gas companies. Um, it's not in any of our benefit that they have the stranglehold that they do. Um, and it's not in the benefit of our future generations of my children and grandchildren. You know, it's, it's in their short term benefit to eke out as much capital as they can in the short term. Yeah. And we've always been so incentivized by that. And now, uh, as the as what we assume to be the only species on Earth that can simulate the future in our brains, right? Plan for the future and imagine what comes forward. You look at all these sci-fi movies, you know, and they talk about like robots and and you know, yes, deadly yeah. AI. And in our movies, they always take our form. They always look like us. So they got two arms and two legs because we view that as being the peak of optimization. Mm -hmm. That this is what this is this is what the peak is. But that's that's not true. Intelligence is the optimization. Whatever physical form you're taking after that is whatever. So there are so many creatures on this planet that just physically are so much better to adapt and survive than we are right. um, in harsh conditions. So our 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 uh, ace in the hole has been our brain. But I guess we're fine. we're learning right now that we haven't been using it the way that we should have been using it this whole We've time. We've been using it for destructive purposes, mm -hmm. not for <laughs> constructive purposes. Exactly. 
Yeah. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Zenas Bear, yes. for being a guest here today. Thank you very much for having me. If uh, if folks want to reach out to you, uh, how could uh, people get a hold of you in the wide world? Um, my uh, right email my email address is zbear at zbear.com or at my website is zbear.com. And bear is spelled B-A-E-R. That's right, yeah. I, and the, the interesting story, uh, I was um, the first one of the 15 children in our family born in America. My other siblings oh. were born in uh, Canada. And I was born at a Hutterite colony northwest of Grand Forks. So that's, that's where my home is. The, the Forest River Colony at Inkster, North Dakota is where I was born. Oh, that's <laughs> neat. Yeah. Uh, now... Are different Hutterite colonies? Do they specialize in different things? Oh yeah, they're they uh, were very uh, agrarian uh, based uh, up until the last uh, couple decades. Now they have become much more involved in manufacturing and and end user uh, commercial manufacturing rafters or um, uh, concrete um, components. I worked with a group who uh, specialized in like cabinetry building and fine carpentry. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Holy moly, you have never seen such fine work. And people who are so in tune to the building process, uh, I was pretty amazed. This was down at the uh, down in Wapaton. They had a they were building a kitchen, a teaching kitchen. Oh sure. And I was just blown away. And I thought to myself, oh man, well. I guess I got to take my life a little bit more seriously if I'm going to have the same kind of craftsmanship that these folks did. Those so. Hutterites were just cabineting all around you, man. <laughs> they just cabineted circles around you. Well, the uh, the group outside of Holly had the best turkeys I've ever had in my entire life, and the honey. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. But that's a that's a story for a whole other podcast. <laughs> but, but they didn't they didn't uh, continue with that food sales because of uh, MDA regulations. Which that one that one cut me deep, and I was going to bring. And I, I think that they would have the right if I am successful. They should have that right to sell and peddle the products of the farm without obtaining a license. I like that. Because the pot pies I got from there were also yes. top notch, and I missed those a lot. Yeah, as they well. grow pot. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that they grew pot. <laughs> well, we'll we'll see what happens uh, as in the North Dakota. Goes you'll pretty, soon. Yeah. pretty soon, we'll, we'll have we're basically ca- Canada. <laughs> a new cash crop. There you go. Uh, again, Zenas, thank you very much thank for being a guest. Thank you very much for having me. JJ Meets World. That's going to wrap it up for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode of JJ Meets World and would like to help us continue to produce two new episodes every week, you can donate to our Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash JJ Meets World and donate today. Even as little as a dollar a month can go a long way. Visit our website at www.jjmeetsworld.com or hit up our social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the sites the kids are using these days. If you'd like to stay up to date on new episodes of JJ Meets World, You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or wherever you consume the podcast that you love. JJ Meets World is produced every week by Tucker Lucas. You can find out more about Tucker's work by checking out www.moonbasemaria.com. If you want to get in touch with your host with the most, go to linebenders.com, and you can find direct contact info for JJ. If there were 50 
cupcakes in front of me, and I was told one of them was poisoned, I would probably feel comfortable eating 20 cupcakes before I really weighed the consequences. Mm-hmm.